Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, it's Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Today, we're bringing you a show that we put out last month, but a lot of you who listen to us on the radio didn't get to hear it because our broadcast in some parts of California was preempted with the news that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just passed away. It's such an important show, we wanted to make sure you could hear it. Today on our show, we're going inside a hospital room in Oakland to talk about something few of us even want to think about. I didn't want to come home. I didn't want my children to see me in the condition that I was in. That's Michael Thomas. He's a tall guy. He's got a bushy white beard, and he's sitting next to the window with an oxygen tube in his nose. He's 64, and he has COPD which is a lung disease that makes it hard to breathe. He's been in and out of the hospital for several years. His doctor says he's especially vulnerable to COVID. He's already pretty sick. I, I know that I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be around for a few. I'm not going anywhere just yet. I'm, 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 I'm not going anywhere. Not yet. I, I would say another, another 10 years. 10 years. I want to be totally frank with you because I, des- I, I believe that you deserve that. I'm concerned that you may not have as much time as you think. COVID-19 is forcing many of us to think more about sickness and death, sometimes for the first time. And it can be a messy and powerful process. What happens if, if, if my son gets sick? Mm-hmm. What happens if he doesn't make it? If we could have put him back in bed and said, Dad, there's the high likelihood that you have COVID and you're 92, What do you want to do? He absolutely would have said, leave me here. This is where I want to be. We're going to explore how those conversations can help transform our fears about death into hope about life. Today on our show, we're going to meet several people who've been forced to think about death and dying in a new way. Like Evelyn Jarillo. She's a grocery store worker in Los Angeles. And she says when the pandemic hit in March... No one wanted to talk about it. (laughs) People were crazy. People who work in the store, people like customers, they're like... And no one wanted to talk about it. Evelyn says it felt like even mentioning COVID-19 was somehow inviting sickness or death into their lives. But avoiding talking about covid didn't stop her co-workers from getting sick. And in early April, Evelyn started to feel unwell herself. Chills, fatigue. It got to the point where she couldn't stand up very well. She tried to figure out a way to get tested for COVID. And I told her, like, what I was feeling, they didn't really want to do the, the test. 
And I, I, I went straight out and I told her, you know what? I have my mom and she's been having a um, heart surgery recently and I don't want to take a chance. And I work for a grocery store. And when I told them that, she's like, okay, so we're going to do, we're going to do the test. A few days later, Evelyn's results came back positive. Evelyn eventually recovered and she's back at work again, but her concerns about dying didn't disappear. So we asked Jessica Zitter, the doctor who we heard from at the beginning of this show, to give Evelyn a call. Dr. Zitter is a palliative care physician, which means she helps people talk about death and what their wishes would be at the end of their lives. She works at Highland Hospital, which is a public hospital in Oakland. But these days, she's mostly talking to patients over Zoom. So what was it like to talk to Evelyn? It was it was really you know, eye-opening in a way. Um, you know, in some ways, I feel like these frontline workers are kind of, um, they're kind of the canaries in the coal mine. And, you know, Evelyn saw something that most of us don't get a chance to see. She saw the potential for death. She saw the potential for her own death. She saw the potential for her mother's and her husband's death, both people with, you know, a lot of medical illnesses and conditions. She saw the potential for her son's death. I mean, how many of us actually think about our kids dying? And so she, I think in some ways, has a lot to teach the rest of us. Hmm. Did she sound like she was scared? Yes. I mean, she was scared about the possibility of her son dying. When you're sick and you're feeling the way you feel, it's like made you not think about you. It made you think about others. It made you think about what happened if, if, if my son gets sick? Mm. What happened if he doesn't make it? What happened if it happens to my mom? Mm. You know, you, you're most thinking on what if. Is that surprising to you that you would even be considering that he could possibly die? Yeah, he can possibly die. That's why, that's why I'm scared. Like with my son, I know, like, he's 22, kind of overprotecting him. So it sounds like living through COVID-19 has opened up new worries for Evelyn. Maybe not so much about her own death, but about her son. I think it's kind of hard. I don't think that no mother will be able to talk with, like, their kids about, son, if you die tomorrow, what do you want me to do? I'm like, no, no, (laughs) I, I can't, I can't. Wait, let me make sure I understand. Are you saying you couldn't ask your son, what would you want me to do if you got COVID and you were in the hospital on a, on a ventilator? You, you don't feel like you could talk to him no, about that? No, I can't. Why? I, I can't even think. Like, I, I can't. Like Evelyn, the last thing I want to do is think about my children dying. It's just grim. It's horrifying. It feels in some ways like not what a mother does, right? A mother's supposed to focus on all the positives and the weddings and the, you know, we're not supposed to focus on the deathbed moments of a child. And um, I remember on my son's 18th birthday, and I mentioned this when I was talking to Evelyn, just, um, I played this game, Go Wish with him. Um, and I learned things about my son that were extremely valuable. 
So is it like a card game, like Go Fish? Well, the, the way you play this game, Go Wish, is you you sort of sort these cards. There's like, I think there's, I don't remember how many there are, 36, 56, something like that. But they're all different different attributes, different values that, that every single person is probably going to sort differently. You, and one of the approaches to this game is to sort them, you know, your top 10 things that are most important to you. And then to be sitting with a loved one or somebody with whom you would want to have this conversation and share that information with them and ask each other lots of probing questions about those three or 10 or whatever they are, preferences that are, that are important things that they would want to uh, always hold on to throughout the course of their life. And um, what I learned from my son, to sh- my shock, was that his top card was that he wants to always be able to be kept clean, which uh, for many mothers out there of 18-year-old sons, I can imagine is a sort of a surprise. (laughs) And it was a real shock to me. I mean, that he put it number one. You know, I would have really felt worried if he were on his deathbed, that if I tried to clean him, that I might irritate him or bother him, but to have him tell me, no, mom, this would be an important act of love. This would be something that would be catering to the things that are important to me is just a gift um, that I, I cherish. Yeah, I mean, as a mom, it's just so hard to even fathom that. I mean, my kids are eight and 10. Um, and actually this morning, my 10-year-old said to me, Mom, you know, if you die and you want to be cremated, because they do know that that's my wish, um, you know, can we talk about where you want to put the ashes? And if I die first, could my ashes go where you're going to be? Because I'm always going to want to be with you. And my my first instinct was like, I just want to shut down this conversation. I don't want to. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I don't want to be talking to my 10 year old about death. I mean, I just want to shield them from it right now. Wow. Yeah. How did that conversation come about? I have no idea. I don't know if it was a dream. I mean, it was first thing in the morning and it was the first question. Wow. So I think some of the stuff gets played out at night, you know, the anxiety of the pandemic. Yeah. um, Fears around parents not being here. I resonate with what you're talking about. Like imagining you sitting there right now, they're coming to you with this concept and you're sitting there and I almost imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, this inner kind of, this inner squeezing of like, your stomach muscles and just this clenching of, I'm going to stay in this conversation, but how can we kind of get out of it? And I, and all I can say is, is asking open-ended questions. And this is something we do in palliative care a lot. And I think you can do it with your family as well. What else? And what else are you thinking? And why, you know, why are you thinking about that? And, and are there any other concerns that you have? I think really opening it up more and letting them come to you with, with what else is going on in their mind, because there is more going on and just leaving space for more. You're listening to the California Report magazine, and this week we're devoting our whole show to hearing from Dr. Jessica Zitter. She's the author of Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. She works at Highland Hospital in Oakland, where she specializes in critical and palliative care, improving the quality of life for people facing severe illness. 
She says the COVID pandemic is forcing more of us to think about death and dying. And pandemic or not, Dr. Zitter says we all need to be having hard conversations about our end-of-life wishes. Like, where do we want to die? I will tell you that COVID or no COVID, the hospital is not always the right place for people to go. And, you know, that was true for my friend, Andrew Rich, who... um, went up to Sonoma early in the pandemic, very early in the pandemic, uh, to celebrate his dad's 92nd birthday with him. And um, while he was there with him, his father got sick. I had him take a Benadryl because it seemed like he was having a severe allergic reaction. Um, I had him do that, and he he went to bed basically at 5 o'clock, which he often does to nap 5 o'clock. And he just didn't get up for dinner. Um, you know, he said he had no appetite. He was just going to go to sleep. And then in the morning, my mom woke me up and said, you know, I need your help. Dad's collapsed. This was happening before COVID was really in, in the public eye in California. And, you know, Andrew's father had had a couple of other respiratory illnesses in the past, had gone to the hospital and had recovered. So, you know, that's where they went. It was ahead of the sort of wave and, yeah. and we were not thinking COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, they were thinking of all the other things it could be and just decided best thing to do is to bring him into the ER. And, and, and then it just sort of cascaded into, you know, as you know, the typical default situation. It's like, all right, let's intubate him. Let's sedate him. Let's give him antibiotics. Let's, you know, let's run this test and that test. And all right, well, let's just see how it goes for the next two days. And let's see how it goes for the next two days after that. So what happened to Andrew's dad? He didn't get better. You know, he remained on the ventilator really sick. And this this poor family was just, you know, out of the hospital, not able to come in and visit him, like so many of our patients, and pretty much no visitors. And he spent two weeks on the ventilator, and then he died. When my, my husband Mark and I talked to Andrew a couple weeks later... He was just still so devastated. Yeah, if we could rewind the clock two weeks Mm -hmm. to that Sunday morning when he collapsed, if we could have put him back in bed and said, Dad, there's the high likelihood that you have COVID and you're 92, what do you want to do? He absolutely would have said, leave me here. This is where I want to be. I want to Mm -hmm. be in this bedroom looking out in the Mm -hmm. valley yeah. And if I die, this is where I want to die. He would absolutely have said that. There's, there's no question. It's what he would have wanted. I mean, it's so heartbreaking to hear, you know, the regret in his voice and that he felt like his dad's initial wishes weren't being respected. I mean, did his father have his wishes written out? Had he done this kind of advanced planning about what kind of a death he wanted to have? Yeah, I mean, this family had had conversations before, and he had actually said that he did not want to be on machines. Um, And yet, you know, sometimes the best laid plans can get completely upended in the face of fear and illness and symptoms and your family not being there with you, which they weren't because this was the beginning of COVID. This wasn't a case of, of 
of a hospital coming in and doing something against someone's stated will. I mean, you know, Andrew's father did assent and consent to this approach. I mean, again, he, like all of, like everybody, he was a part of this panicked moment. So, I mean, what should we do, right? If we, if we do have these conversations, we do write down our wishes and we end up, you know, going to a hospital or a situation where it's not our doctor taking care of us and, and those wishes can't be spelled out by our family because our family can't be in there with us. I mean, is, should we all just be carrying around, you know, our end of life wishes in our wallet or? It's complicated because this is a process. It's a lifelong process, a lifelong conversation. And the truth is sometimes things change. I mean, it's not to say that just because you've had a conversation or made a decision that you can't change your mind. And, you know, in this particular situation, I mean, this, again, it was all new and we knew COVID was coming. And and the ER doctor who was taking care of him knew COVID was coming and no one really knew what that meant. So there was this extra layer of uncertainty around the whole thing, um, which made us all more vulnerable. And that fear can take over not only the patient and their family, but the doctors, you know, we also are very much responsible for leading people through things that may not actually be in their best interest because we're afraid and we're uncertain. Andrew's father, amidst all the uncertainty of this, of this new and emerging pandemic, said, okay, let's give it a try. Right, even even though that was different from what his wishes were when he wrote them down at a different time. That's right. And the honest truth is people's wishes do change, and, and that's legitimate too. Sometimes people uh, be, decide to become more aggressive. There's no right or wrong. You just want it to be as patient or person-centered as possible. And what that requires in order to get there is just having constant and honest conversations within families um, about and, and with your healthcare providers about these realities that we are going to die and how do we want it to go. So Dr. Zitter, we started our show today hearing you have kind of a tough conversation with one of your patients at Highland Hospital, Michael Thomas. Tell us a little bit more about him. Oh, what a lovely guy. I met Michael in the hospital. He had very, very serious lung disease. He was a guy who was just warm and kind and loved life. And he really very quickly opened up about his family and about how important they are to him. And they're all in Ohio. And he was just talking about how they all lived on the same street. And he cannot wait, you know, when he's better to go and be with them. And really the whole conversation was was kind of about his family. They're my grandchildren, my children and my grandchildren. A lot of the love there. We have a lot of good times when I'm there. That's what I want to be. He was going to be discharged over the next few days to rehab. But in getting to know Michael, I realized that there was sort of an urgency to talk with him about some stuff that I really thought he needed to think about. I'm not going anywhere. Not yet. I, I would say not another 10 years. Oh. That's not good. So I'm not pulling about it. I'm not going anywhere. Anytime, another 10 years. Five, 10 years. I'm not going anywhere. I'm that stubborn. <laughs> you're more, you're a more confident person than I am about myself. Seriously, <laughs> I mean I love your optimism. 
And I want to be, I want to be totally frank with you because I just, I, I believe that you deserve that. I'm concerned that you may not have as much time as you think. What I do know is that you have pretty serious illness and you've right. been hospitalized many, many times. Um, right. I know you have some very serious goals and they include really being with family. And right. I would hate for you to miss that opportunity because I don't know my God willing, you'll be here in five years. That's what I'm hoping for. But I, if someone told me Michael is going to die within the next six months, I would also not be surprised. I know you probably do this all the time, but it's, it's so intense to hear you having to deliver that message to somebody who really might not have wrapped their mind around it, you know, that they may not have the amount of time they think they do. I guess it gets easier technically for me, but it sure doesn't get easier emotionally. Mm-hmm. Every time I have to deliver a message like that to someone, I have to steal myself. I have to tell myself, this is my job. This is what I do. And I am going to give this information to this lovely man because he deserves it. So did you think Michael was going to take your advice and go to Ohio to be with his grandkids? I mean, does that kind of thing usually sink in after one conversation, especially over Zoom? Well, that's where the beauty of a palliative care team comes in. Palliative care teams usually consist of a doctor and a chaplain and a social worker and a nurse. By working together as a team, we can both see the patient in a much more three-dimensional way, and we can also probably connect with the patient in a more three-dimensional way. And so I was lucky enough to be seeing Michael with my colleague and mentor, Chaplain Betty Clark. Dr. Zitter said that you are a very spiritual man. Yes. Oh, tell me what that means to you. Well, I believe in Lord Jesus Christ, number one. But deep down inside, while I feel emotionally inside. And I have a lot of deep feelings. And so prayer must be important to you. Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely, yes. And what is your favorite song? My favorite song? Mm-hmm. Yo, Not the Temptation. You know how it goes? I've lost my voice. Sing it, sing my voice away. Anyway, <laughs> right. it goes like, something like this. You ready? You ready? Not to Temptation. Oh, yo, Dina said. Eighth victory will help you. you. Some of us win. win. Fight mentally mentally onward. Dark passions of So, Dr. Zitter, why do you think Betty is able to reach patients like Michael, you know, in this way through their faith connection rather than just, you know, hearing medical facts in the way that he would from you as a doctor? Great question. Uh, Because most people see doctors as this expert on high who can pronounce and bring in some something, but, but to really connect in a human way, they are much more likely to respond to someone like Betty. And Dr. Zitter, we should say you are a white Jewish doctor, and Pastor Betty and Michael are both black Christians. Jessica, we're going to have prayer if you're ready. Betty, am I ever not ready? Come on. <laughs> are you ready, Michael? Yes, ma'am. Yes, I am. Yes. All right. Let us pray. Almighty, merciful, gracious, and loving God, we come this day 
Betty was speaking Michael's language of spirituality and focus on God and Jesus. And it was something that even though his family couldn't be there with him, um, this was a part of home. And we put those plans in your hands that he will get back to Ohio and be with his family and his grandchildren. And Lord, we know that you can hold time. So we just thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. Touch him, bless him, and all of those who come into his room, let their hands be your hands, let their heart be your heart. We ask this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank Amen. you. Amen. I'm really glad we had this conversation, and I know it's hard stuff to talk about, and I really appreciate your honesty. But what I hope it's going to trigger is you meeting, talking on the phone with your amazing kids and clarifying these values that you have and these preferences about how you want to live sooner I than will. later. I'm going to do that. I'm going to talk to my son really, We're hoping for five years. We're hoping for 10 years. But plan for what could also and, happen. And let which them is, know that we had a conversation not about death, but about life and how you want your life to go. Amen. Thank you. There you have it. Um, I mean, this is really what palliative care is all about. It's about how people want to live their lives. It's about thinking about how they want to live their lives. And that informs how people want to die. But it really starts with how they want to live. What happened to Michael? Did he get to see his family? Yes, Michael did get home. And I've actually been talking to him uh, since then, and it is just such a joy. It is such a beautiful, beautiful joy to hear him with his family and his grandkids and beaming with pride and living on this road where all of his kids have houses and he was home. But he really told me I, when he was back there in Ohio how, how difficult it had been for him to actually get himself to do this move. I didn't want to come home and the condition that I was in. I didn't want my children to see me because I've always been a strong, big guy, construction worker. Yeah. I did a lot of different things from office with white collar jobs to physical work. I've yeah. done everything. I've lost it all. And I didn't want my children, my grandchildren to see me sick. That's why I was hesitant to come. But then I know they loved me so much. And here I am today, enjoying every moment. And that's it. Family is family. Family is family. And for many of us, it's, it's one of the most important pieces of our lives, especially at the end. And it just shows that, you know, if we, if we can just bring ourselves to just face our mortality, and plan for it, we can get what Michael got. We can get this precious time with the people that he loved the most or whatever it is that's most important to you. Dr. Jessica Zitter. You can learn more about her book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, and find resources about starting these kinds of conversations with your loved ones at californiareport.org.
The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our technical producer is Rob Spate. Our show producer is Amanda Font, and Ariella Markowitz was our director this week. This episode was produced in collaboration with Ellen Rolfus and Julie Burstein, with support from Tessa Zitter, Yonatan Reckham, and Gloria Houston. Thanks this week to Highland Hospital in Oakland and the United Food and Commercial Workers Union in Los Angeles. This episode of The California Report was produced with support from the California Healthcare Foundation. I'm Sasha Coca. And I got to admit, I haven't written up my end of life wishes, something we've all got to do. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.